You're listening to Solving Climate Naturally. Join us as we unpack nature's role in tackling climate change and talk to the people leading the way. Welcome to Solving Climate Naturally, where we speak with experts and leaders at the cutting edge of nature-based solutions and help demystify this growing field. We're your hosts. I'm Julia. I'm Ida. And I'm Kate. We're thrilled to have Ariel Hayward with us today. Ariel leads climate strategy and solutions at Patch, the platform powering climate action. At Patch, she focuses on developing new commercial structures to unlock investment in climate solutions. She also helps companies navigate Patch's vast network of climate projects and build carbon credit portfolios to maximize their climate impact. Prior to Patch, Ariel worked at Carbon by Indigo Ag, helping to develop their soil carbon credit business strategy. Ariel also spent time in impact investing strategies at the Rise Fund and was a consultant with Bain and Company. I met Ariel through NCX's work with Patch. She has a wealth of knowledge on the voluntary carbon market and nature-based solutions, as well as a pulse on the perspectives of buyers in the market. I'm really excited for this show today because I think she can give us a great perspective on what it's like to be in the weeds as a project developer and at the cutting edge of soil carbon and developing a nature-based solution. Um, at the beginning, and then also giving us that broader buyer demand side view. So it's a great way to start our uh, season back up again after some time away. Ariel, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Welcome, Ariel. So we have a lot of ground to cover today, but let's start with the origin story. Where did your interest in natural climate solutions come from, and how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, I so I've always been interested in nature. I grew up in Minnesota, and that's really where my love for nature and, and natural systems was was born. I spent a lot of time outdoors, and my family vacations were often to national parks. And just seeing the the natural world that that we all live in was just it was so special for me as a kid. And I think it's impossible to not want to protect the places that you love. Uh, and so that's really how I got into thinking about protecting nature as a potential career path. Um, and I guess kind of a relevant side note, my grandparents on one side were farmers, the other side worked for the Department of Ag. So always grew up around agricultural systems as well, and was really excited about the potential that you know working lands have for, for climate. Um, so originally, though, I went to went to school for, to be a marine biologist and then quickly figured out that that type of research and the seasickness that came along with it was not for me. Uh, so I transitioned over into thinking about, you know, what are the biggest levers that we need to pull in order to kind of solve the climate crisis? And one of the biggest ones that I found was how do we get more capital into the space? What, how do we activate funds? Um, and so I decided to go into the business world. And when I did that, I realized I didn't, didn't actually know all that much about business to start. And so went into uh, the accounting and finance realm and then ultimately consulting to figure out how businesses make their biggest decisions because sustainability is one of the biggest decisions that an organization is going to have to grapple with going forward in the next, call it, you know, 30, 50 years. It's one of the biggest topics that business leaders are going to have to solve. Uh, so went into consulting to really get a, a bird's eye view for especially commodity focused industries. How to how do um, business leaders within the industries that are closest to our natural resources? So think agriculture, mining, utilities. How do they make decisions? Because that's really where kind of the root of the business world's interaction with 
our natural world starts. Um, so spent a bit of time there and then transitioned over to think about how can we invest impactfully. Spent some time working on uh, strategy around uh, impact investments at the RISE Fund. And in that role was introduced to concepts like additionality and how do we think about uh, the impact that a fund actually has on scaling up uh, solutions. And from there, uh, really realized I wanted to get a bit closer to the climate impact uh, on the ground. And so went to Indigo Ag to get a sense for what it takes to actually stand up a carbon project. Uh, how do you think about activating farmers, for example? How do you think about selling this unit that is a carbon credit to buyers? I really wanted to get hands-on experience uh, in that way. And then that brought me ultimately to Patch, um, where we work on basically scaling up all different types of, of climate solutions. So that's it's the abridged version of the story, but always a focus on just how do we activate capital for climate solutions and how do we scale up these solutions within the systems that we operate within today. Thank you, Ariel. I think that really resonates with all of us in sort of starting broad and then, you know, eventually landing on nature-based solutions as an area of focus, just given its potential as a, as a lever for climate. Um, so zooming in on where you are in the present, we'd love to hear a little bit more about Patch. Like what role is Patch playing? What does Patch do? We'd love to get your overview in layman's terms for our listeners. Yeah, so Patch is the platform scaling climate action. What that really means is we develop software and financial infrastructure to help scale climate solutions of all kinds. So this really, the reason I kind of came to Patch was um, at when I was at Indigo working at the project level, there was so much we were doing that was really impactful. And there was so much that we were doing that really we had to do to make sure our business model could work, but maybe there were ways to make it more efficient. And when I met the patch team, they were focused on looking for those efficiencies across all of these different projects. So how do we uh, use kind of a network effect to get more capital into these projects? How do we build software tools to help these businesses run more seamlessly? And that idea of bringing together learnings across all of these different project developers, across all of these different buyers, and really being a market intermediary to help grow the, the market overall resonated a lot with me. Um, and so Patch, I mean, a few examples when I say platform for scaling climate action, a few examples of this is, you know, we're really focused on building the software infrastructure layer. So a few examples are our patch radius product, which allows um, different aggregators, basically, it could be a private equity fund with a portfolio uh, to make available carbon credits and, and access to projects to their network. It could be a retailer with a supply chain who wants to make uh, investment in these projects available to their network. That's one uh, example. Another is our patch offtake offering, which is a multi-year pre-purchase agreement. And the infrastructure piece that we, we really focused on is how do you create the contractual frame that de-risks the proposition of investing in these climate projects? And then finally, and, and most uh, one of the most exciting pieces for me is uh, the release of what we're calling Carbon OS. So really the operating system for 
different projects, different climate projects. Uh, we just recently released this as of the time that this recording comes out. And really what this is, is a purpose-built operating system that project developers can run their businesses on. Uh, carbon credit businesses are really quite unique uh, relative to other businesses in the market and their inventory management needs, their basically their tooling needs are going to also be completely unique from other businesses that are out there. So this focus that Patch has on developing the infrastructure layer that helps these solutions scale is really what's exciting to me. How can we bring the best of uh, the software world and the finance world to bear for climate? Amazing. And one of the things we wanted to, to just dive into a little bit more on, on this particular episode is just the ways in which soil carbon differs from some of the other nature-based solutions that we've talked about. So whether that's in terms of the actual technical implementation, MRV, carbon crediting methodologies, or the financing for soil carbon. So I wonder if you could just elaborate on that and the, the what makes soil carbon different. Yeah, absolutely. I think there, there are several things that make it unique. One, I'll, I'll talk through them kind of in order, but MRV is a big one, um, and then financing structures, and then ultimately this working lands uh, concept is, is another. So first on the MRV front, soil carbon is... Uh, it is an emerging and rapidly growing field of study, which I think is really exciting. Um, but the heterogeneity of just soil itself makes it really interesting to study and to try to build MRV models around. So if you look at a soil map of the United States, for example, you're going to see different types of soil all over the United States. Right? So no, there's not a single homogenous soil type, which means that modeling for each of those different soil types based on different things like clay content is going to look different. And so in order to build an MRV solution or system for soil, it's not just a soil MRV system. It's actually what, you know, it's, it, there are so many inputs and so many variables, everything from soil type, that's just one example, to uh, climate and weather patterns, to types of cover cropping, to types of cropping, right? Like you have all of these different inputs into this MRV model, which makes it incredibly difficult, but in so exciting and so interesting to look at. And so when you're creating soil carbon programs, figuring out how you take all of that basically heterogeneity within the sample sets and within the, the data and aggregating that into a program that you can actually fund is one of, it's so unique relative to a lot of other natural climate solutions that, for example, might have a smaller pro project boundary or a more defined project boundary that's smaller than the whole of the United States, for example. So I think just the level of detail and complexity in that's involved with Soil MRV is something that is pretty unique and, and not to say standalone unique, there's so much complexity in all natural climate solutions um, and their MRV approaches, but it is one of the things that I think uh, stands out about soil. Uh, the second piece that I'll talk about is just how you think about the investment side of it. So when farmers are actually taking on these practices that increase soil organic carbon, so the probably the simplest example is... Um, planting a cover crop for the first time because you're increasing the amount of biomass cover you have. You're allowing that soil more time to just really build up its structure. Um, that is a proposition for a farmer that 
requires cash outlay and it also requires operational risk. Are you going to get that cover crop back off of your field in time to plant your core crop? Given weather windows are so volatile, that's actually a really big trade-off that a farmer has to make. And each year, they only kind of get one shot to get it right, right. You have one weather window, that's your time to plant, that's your time to get in there. Um, and so making sure that you make that proposition, the investment of you know, planting a cover crop worth it for a farmer is a really big and p- pretty unique piece of this that also plays into kind of the third part, which is the fact that we're creating credits from working lands. We're actually increasing soil organic carbon content. We're having this, making this climate impact on a working system. Uh, and so you have to not only take into account what's the cost and what's the operational consideration, but one of the really exciting things about soil carbon is you don't have this necessarily the opportunity cost of do I take this fully out of production or do I conserve this or do I have the climate impact or like basically do I have the climate impact in that way or do I have this working land? You're actually creating the climate impact within an already working system, which I think is you, you see um, kind of similarities with with IFM in this way, but it makes it uniquely difficult to think, figure out things like additionality and durability and how you actually incentivize not only initial climate impact, but sustained climate impact, because you have to take into account how does this system work today? How should it work in the long term? Um, and really, like, how do we ensure that we're going to continue to maintain this balance of working land that's generating climate impact? You articulate so well the sort of nuances and particular aspects of soil carbon uh, you know, and one of the questions that we had is people do talk about additionality, duration, leakage as the pillars of high integrity credits. I'm curious if there are other pillars of high integrity supply that, based on your experience, are important to consider. And what are the biggest bottlenecks to generating that supply? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, additionality, dur- durability, and leakage get a lot of the airtime. But what I what I like to talk especially with buyers about is let's not think about climate projects as a a single mass or kind of blob of every you know all the climate projects in together let's look at the project on a project by project basis what is that project doing in the way of I'll take it out of just natural climate solutions for a minute and think about things like negativity. So what's actually the net impact, for example, if you have an engineered solution and that's going to require energy to actually remove carbon from the atmosphere, what's the net impact of of that solution, for example? If you're looking at an ARR project, uh, afforestation, reforestation, revegetation, you might actually think about things that are not necessarily just additionality, durability, and leakage. You might also think about how many different species of, of plants are you actually planting? Uh, is it just a single monoculture project? Is it multi-species? Are those locally native species? So there's a lot of different, and you know, coming from the software world at Patch, we refer to these things sort of as like project metadata. How are you, what is actually going on in the project? And understanding the project at that project level and really getting a sense for, for what does this look like? What's the intervention? How does it work? It allows you to identify the other credit attributes that are critical to that project or to that project type. Um, another example in the biochar space, 
we see a lot of, we see increasing amounts of, of focus on, hey, where does this biomass actually come from? So biomass sourcing is becoming a biochar specific question that comes up more and more frequently. So I think um, it's critical. I, I wouldn't say there's, oh yes, there are three other attributes that we absolutely know in every single case are going to be the other big ones in addition to additionality, durability, leakage. I would say actually being able to have transparency into the project will allow you and the project type and all the nuance that comes with that allows you to identify the credit attributes that are most critical on a project by project basis. So that's kind of the the attributes question that you asked. Um, I'm going to pause on that if you have any questions before I go on to the the supply side. No, that was great. And so what are the bottlenecks then to scaling that high quality supply? Yeah, I think, and there there are several, but the primary that the primary kind of two that I'd focus on. The first is just transparency, um, because as I, if we think about that framing of what's the project level attribute, what are the project level attributes that matter? If we think about that framing, you have to be able to know what those are before you can make a judgment call or a decision on whether you're getting the right ones for your purchase, right, or for the project that you're supporting. Historically, much of the voluntary carbon market has interacted with itself through PDFs, right? So there's been a lot of, uh, if you if you read a methodology document, if you read a project design document, you're going to see a lot of equations, you're going to see a lot of words, you're not necessarily going to see real-time monitoring or updates from the project because historically technology has not, um, the full p- potential of technology as kind of an unlock for the industry hasn't been realized. I think especially with the transparency piece, that's really critical. Now we have things like LIDAR, we have all of these different remote sensing techniques that allow us to actually see what's happening within these ecosystems, within these projects on a more of a real-time basis. And so I think that transparency enabled by technology is one of the major unlocks for kind of scaling up supply because, and this is kind of the, the meta com- comment, trust is the biggest hurdle or barrier to unlocking scale in this market. If a buyer doesn't trust that they're getting what they're paying for, if an investor doesn't trust that the project's going to deliver as they say it will, that capital is simply not going to flow, right? So that trust piece is so, it, it feels a bit nebulous at times, but actually one of the ways that we find you can best build trust is through transparency that technology enables. Um, so that's kind of the biggest one. The second one, which I promised I would mention is really this investment side. Uh, so how do we ensure that, and again, that there's there's undertones of, of trust that come with that as well, but how do we unlock the global capital markets to invest in these projects. Because in order for these projects to truly scale to the billions of tons that we know we need, uh, we need to activate, call it billions to trillions of dollars, which you know there are that there is that scale of, of capital in the world, but it's not yet going to these projects on the scale that it needs to. Um, but again, I think all of it just comes down to, to trust and, and trust is engendered through that transparency. I'd love to dive in a little bit more to this this last uh, this last piece you were hinting at around how to really unlock capital at scale and trust is obviously key there. Um, uh, you, early earlier in the in the conversation, you also mentioned you know, part of Patch's uh, product is developing and offering these multi or off take agreements, which is something that 
we're also working on and I think is increasingly part of the conversation for around unlocking project finance. So we'd love if you could elaborate a bit on that and we provide some perspective on the role of offtake agreements specifically in unlocking some of that capital. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll take a kind of a big step back and think about in general, just how capital markets and investment is, is unlocked even beyond climate solutions. Typically, in order for an investor to make an investment to say, I believe in the ROI of this investment, there needs to be some level of forward committed revenue that a project has. And in uh, industries where there's a lot of historic market data, there's pricing that's pretty clear, there's enough liquidity, it's pretty, well, not easy, easy, but it's relatively simpler for an investor to say, I believe in the financial case that this business is making. And so I'm going to invest in this company today. For climate projects at large, because we're still developing all of the revenue models that these climate projects might pursue. So think earlier, we were talking a little bit about the voluntary carbon market is one avenue. There's also kind of uh, low carbon fuels markets. There's also uh, scope three reduction claims that are starting to emerge and be kind of interesting. As we're developing these markets for monetization, investors don't have that confidence today that there will be the revenue, it, that the project will have the revenue they're claiming they will on a forward basis to the level that they need to have that confidence in order to invest. And so, and this is, it's actually quite similar to the early days of, of renewables, um, where we started to develop PPAs, power purchase agreements, in order to demonstrate the future viability of these solutions. And so we're effectively applying that same framework to a lot of these climate projects. And so when you talk to a lot of climate projects today, one of their main needs is offtake agreements. They'll say, well, to your offtake, offtake agreements, that's what we're looking for, because that'll give us that demonstrated forward committed revenue that we can then take to an investor and say, look, we are good for it. We have contractually committed revenue. Please give us this investment. And now you can make your business case. Um, so that's kind of the, why do we need offtake agreements and what are climate projects really looking for? Now, it's really difficult to get buyers to lock into those offtake agreements, primarily due to risk. Uh, there is a lot of risk inherent in saying a buyer saying, yes, I'm going to purchase this credit or the set of credits on this forward schedule, especially if they go one-to-one -one with a project developer, because that project developer is early stage. There's a lot of proof points that they have to hit. Um, you have to, for example, sign up a certain number of farmers and they have to adopt practices. And then those practices have to yield credits, right? Like in the case of um, the voluntary carbon market and carbon crediting. And so a lot of buyers are a little bit hesitant to actually lock themselves into a multi-year forward purchase agreement, especially in a world where pricing is unclear and very volatile. Project types are very, uh, or projects are very nascent and have a lot of proof points to go. And so I'll talk just briefly about how Patch is thinking about it. If there's so much risk in the system, right? Like there's, there's technology level risk, there's kind of commercial risk, there's delivery risk. We need more and more players to get involved in the value chain to take on parts of that risk, right? You can't expect the buyer to fully bear that risk. You can't expect just the project to bear that risk. And you certainly can expect the investor to bear all of that risk. And so uh, as Patch, we see one of the roles that 
that we have in the market is to help de-risk that equation. And that's why we've focused so much on developing the contractual frame that allows that risk to be spread across the value chain a bit more. Um, I'm going to, there's a lot more detail I could go into. I'm not, I'll pause there, but it's um, basically when we think about offtake agreements, we see it as the first step to unlocking the investment at scale to the tune of billions to trillions of dollars. It's that forward committed revenue. Risk is something that we're thinking a lot about too at NCX, Ariel, and how can we use technology and other strategies to help mitigate risk? And so I'm curious to hear your perspective of what are other strategies that project developers or buyers can use to mitigate that risk beyond the contractual agreements um, that you're mentioning? Are there other strategies that you see? Yeah, I think um, there certainly are. And I think this is one of the most exciting areas of growth for climate in general is just this conversation around risk because it is starting to be had not only at the project level and not only at the intermediary level, but also at the financial institution level. You're starting to see more and more solutions for risk mitigation come to the fore. Insurance products, structured finance options, you're starting to see energy around this. So there's kind of the, the, what are the financial risk mitigants that folks are seeing? And then when we talk about risk, we would be, uh, I think we would be remiss to not to not mention project level transparency and, and risk just around, will this project actually deliver? Um, and I, so I'll talk about the, the financial side first. I think uh, in general, my one of my personal philosophies in this space is we're so much better collaborating and building things together in this space than we are trying to go it alone. I think that's especially clear when it comes to financial risk mitigation. There are insurers in the space, there are structured finance desks, there are intermediaries, there are investors, and there's different types of investment capital that are going into this space. So think things like concessional capital or catalytic capital constructs, blended finance constructs, public-private partnerships, contracts for difference. There's a whole host of different financial um, products or, or offerings that are in the early stages of development or have been applied to other industries that folks are really starting to focus on because this concept of risk is becoming so clear that if we can de-risk the proposition of climate solutions, we can unlock investment. Like that is becoming, I think, you know, all the conferences that I've been to in the last year, that's become even more of a topic of conversation um, there. So that's just the, the financial risk side. There's lots of different options it's a topic that I, I get personally super excited about. Um, then I think on the on the project level, climate risk side. So will this project deliver as, as it claims it will? And how do we get confidence around that? This is where I think the role of, of tech and in particular software cannot be overstated because, and it comes back to that transparency conversation we were having before. Historically, we kind of had to say, this is the best model we we have to work with today. Um, and here's the best kind of monitoring approach that we have today. So monitoring reports, again, largely kind of uh, analog. They're very kind of manual. You go out and verify with, with people. And now with technology, with you know all of these solutions that are coming to the fore, we're able to have more real-time visibility into how these projects are actually performing. And that might mean things like we actually have a better sense of uh, delivery 
kind of timing or, or plans versus what we expect to issue. And so for projects too, that's actually pretty game changing because you're able to have a better sense for what am I planning to deliver or what have I pre-committed and how am I tracking towards that? So this real time, what is the actual climate impact? How are we tracking versus what we planned? That really serves to not necessarily, it does de-risk in a way, but really just help to increase the level of trust that buyers are able to have in projects, project developers are able to have in their own projections, investors are able to have in those projections. Um, and so I really think that climate level risk or is the project delivering technology is, is absolutely foundational to how we actually address that risk going forward. So we'd love to go back to the topic that we were talking about before. You were talking about um, sort of the, the challenges on, on the demand side, on the buyer side, and the role of you know, technology enable transparency in that. You know, obviously, followers of this arena will have been observing the recent spate of articles from The Guardian, Bloomberg, positing some of the challenges in the space. And, you know, I think one of the topics that we've also been hearing on the conference or get in the last few months has been that corporates have been increasingly hesitant to engage with the voluntary carbon markets on the basis of reputational risk, but also for all the other risks that you that you talked about. How do you think about engaging with buyers who are concerned about engaging in the voluntary carbon markets at this time? And as an addendum to that, why would you, how, how would you argue, if you would, that buyers should actually be participating in carbon markets today? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll, I'll start with um, kind of that first question of, of how do we think about engaging with buyers on this? Put very simply, honesty is always the best policy, like, sorry to speak in platitudes, but I think we all need to have a very clear-eyed understanding and and conversation about these articles, about what's coming out, about really the, and and I would put it as like a a very um, good attempt to drive accountability through the space. And I think ultimately the climate space needs the accountability. I think when these articles come out, yes, there are certainly um, scientific debates that need to be had around, is this the right baseline scenario? How do we think about the control environments? How do we think about, you know, is that, you know, what is the um, extent of whether it's 90% or some other percentage? What is the extent of overcrediting? Like those very detailed scientific conversations need to be had. And I think it's important for us to just be uh, take a little bit of a step back and, and recognize that this is science working and accountability being driven through the system in a way that it, it really should be. We need to have open conversations. We need to have additional kind of rigor and analysis brought to the fore to really interrogate and say, you know, is this creating the climate impact that we think it it would? Because the consequences of us not getting this right are just so significant. We don't have the luxury of time. We don't have the luxury of investing in projects that are not working you know, at all, but usually it's some sort of kind of great or some somewhere in the middle is where the actual answer is, right? Like it's not necessarily true that the project's creating no impact. It's probably not true that it's creating exactly 100% of the impact was saying there's somewhere in the middle. But I think what we really try to do is, is level with buyers about that and say, look, it's it, there's no silver bullet here. There's no individual solution that can get this perfectly right in order to basically, but like taking a giant step back, 
the IPCC is clear. There's no path to stay under 1.5 or 2. That doesn't include carbon removal. That doesn't include activating all of the natural climate solutions that we have at our disposal. And so the question or the conversation that I try to reorient buyers to is not, should we do this or should we not do this? It's how do we do this better? And how do we do this better day after day after day? How do we improve the system? How do we ensure that um, the this this really kind of interesting market that we created to funnel dollars into uh, solutions that have historically been outside of any business's value chain. Like this is one of the best things that we've ever come up with to funnel dollars into climate. Uh, so how do we make it better? Not how do we throw it away is kind of the conversation that I think we should be having. And I like to have um, now that said, I think, like how do you how do we think about getting buyers to, um, or how do we address the hesitation? I think it actually kind of comes it first is a conversation about claims. Like what are you using carbon credits in support of these climate projects to do? And what I really uh, personally and like to kind of focus on is a carbon credit is is not a. Um, license to pollute. It's certainly not a license to not reduce, right? Like you have to be, have a very firm reduction plan in place. And I think the claim that you're making, if it, it falls within some kind of the realm of like absolution of some sort, like, Hey, I've fully absolved myself of, of this emission that I emitted. Um, That's where folks tend to get into a lot of trouble. And I, I ultimately think that's not necessarily the right kind of tone of the claim that we want to be making as a global community. Instead, you know, saying I'm supporting this climate project because I believe it needs to scale and I'm using my carbon credit budget to do that, whether or not I'm making a ton for ton claim is a way that a lot of companies are starting to be really quite honest about the work that they're doing across both the reduction and carbon credit purchase front and a way that you can really still support these projects without having to say, is this hundred percent ton for ton exactly right? Um, and it's not to, I, I think it's important to say this is not meant to further obfuscate, you know, the claims landscape or the credits landscape. I think it's just, how do we, how do we create space to fund these projects in a way that's really honest about the impact that they're generating and how much we know about that impact, right? Like we're getting better and better at knowing these things in time, but we need to make sure that we're creating an environment where we have enough funding for innovation. We're still funding the innovation, but we have the flexibility to learn, right? Like that's really the big piece. We have to continue to learn. I Second, all that you just said, Ariel, it's so important, this idea of how do we not let perfect be the enemy of the good. And I think your point around claims is a really great one. I think the risk that I see in the market today is that corporates are now more disposed to inaction versus action. And that's the opposite of what we want to, to happen in terms of climate and ensuring we're you know, incentivizing all solutions as quickly as possible to address this crisis. So anyway, I just want to jump in and say, I think that's a really good point. Yeah. And the green hushing conversation, it's like started this, the term has started to come up a bit more, but a lot of corporates are either not acting or, or not talking about those actions for fear of being called out. And I think when we look at the sheer magnitude of the climate, uh, I, I guess, mountain we have to climb ahead of us, we simply just don't have time to 
to slow down, to to pause. So how do we create? I mean, one of the things that one of the questions that we spend so much time thinking about at Patches, how do we create help to create a system that fosters innovation and transparency and honesty so that we can move as fast as climate requires, right? And so just building off this, these points, what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions that the corporates, but also just buyers more generally have about nature-based solutions today? It's a good question. I think there, there's a couple that come to mind as, as some of the big ones. Um, the first is, I think we tend to actually talk less about the projects and the systems and how they work and get into some of the nuance around like, why is this important for the climate and and how does this project work? Uh, And we focus on project types or kind of generalize at a a project type level. Um, And so one example of this that I maybe I'll I'll kind of put a finer point on it is um, let's just talk about kind of forestry projects for, for a moment. There's different types of forestry projects that exist in the world. There's afforestation, revegetation, uh, reforestation projects, and then there's IFM projects to improve forest management, and there's Red Plus. Um, There's a lot of different ways that we think about maintaining and bolstering the impact that forests have uh, for for the climate. And I think when we um, talk to a lot of buyers, there's there's sometimes a tendency to say, I I only want afforestation, reforestation, revegetation, um, because those ARR projects have this removal component. I only want the removal component. Um, and, and from a claims perspective, that makes a lot of sense. And, and, and even from a climate and, and planetary perspective, we absolutely know we need removal, and that's a really solid way to get there. I think what that misses, though, sometimes is uh, when you think about planting a tree or kind of like, let's just say a forestation reforestation project, that can take, it can take, call it 10 years, just round numbers, 10 years for a tree to fully reach that maturity level, uh, where it's fully sequestering as much carbon as possible. It's, it's biomass is kind of at the level we expect it to be for fully a fully mature tree. And, and you put that against kind of the impact of, uh, you know, cutting down a tree today, a uh, fully mature tree, and, and you're kind of like, well, maybe the best ton in that equation today is the one that's not emitted in the first place, right? And I think that conversation around, like, what are the, what are the actual systems that we're targeting? How are we thinking about these projects and actually bolstering these projects as a, a conversation that is slightly separate from what is the credit I'm buying and what are the properties of that credit is an important distinction and nuanced conversation that buyers are starting to have. But because this is such a new space, I, I simply I think we just simply haven't had enough time in the market yet for buyers to kind of get to that level across the board. Um, and so I think that it, it's not necessarily a misconception. It's just a we're, we're, we're at the level of, of kind of the higher level conversations around project types and things like that. But once you start to get into um, projects themselves, the actual mechanisms that we're, we're funding, and then start to have that conversation about like, well, how do I fund this project? Because I believe in this project, potentially separate from, you know, what is the, the credit that I'm just buying over the counter? Like, let's get this done. Um, so I think just bringing more nuance to that conversation in general, forestry is one example, but there's examples across across the board. Uh, is one of the things that 
I'm most excited to see the market do. Because when you start to have those conversations, you see people light up because they can, they can, it makes it more tangible to them. Like, oh yeah, like we're actually talking about a forest or we're talking about a farmer or we're talking about um, developing a plant or we're talking about ocean alkalinity. Like there's so many different solutions. And when you have that conversation, people relate to it from a place of kind of activation and excitement rather than like kind of fear of, am I going to get called out in a, in a headline or something like that? So I think just shifting that conversation is really important. I, I love this um, this call to go a level deeper and, and really get beyond just that high level attribute of, of project type. Um, and you gave some examples in forestry. I'm curious what types of nature-based solutions or project activities you think are, are underrated or underappreciated? Yeah, I think there's kind of two categories that, that I get excited to talk about. I think one is, and I, I alluded to it uh, briefly, but the concept of just like avoidance related projects. Uh, and again, I think it's important to abstract away the the project and the climate impact from exactly the credit that you're buying and the mechanism there um, and how that relates to claims. Like I want to keep those two separate for a minute because one of the things that I get really excited about when it comes to project types is, and, and maybe this kind of gets into the underrated pieces, conservation-related projects of all forms, um, especially we see a lot of really exciting um, biodiversity com- conservation types of projects that are actually fused with different um, like forestry projects, for example. You start to, We're starting to see more of that emerge. And I think because there have been so many questions around how do I use this credit? Can I use this credit? What claim can I use it for? Things like that. We've kind of lost the heart of the fact that the best ton is the one that's not emitted in the first place when it comes to the climate math. Um, and so conservation projects of all kinds are, are really exciting to me uh, because not only are you, not only are you going to get the kind of uh, like the time scale benefit of that ton not being emitted today, which means it's one less ton that we need to um, remove later on, you kind of get, like, get that benefit, but you also have all these other benefits like biodiversity, for example, or um, in a lot of cases, kind of uh, local income or local community benefits and things like that. So I think I'm going to actually just keep the credit conversation and, and all of the things that really do necessarily need to be figured out about baselining credits. Like Those are all very real conversations that need to be had. So I'm not necessarily saying that um, those are wrong. Like I, th- I think those conversations need to continue to be had. And there's a lot of accountability that needs to be brought into the system around how we think about accounting for these projects. But the projects themselves, I think, uh, the excitement and, and potential of the projects themselves often gets lost in that conversation. And so I think that's, that's one type of project I get really excited about. The other is actually, uh, you know, wanted to be a marine biologist, ocean-based projects get me really excited. I think anything that targets ocean alkalinity is really interesting uh, because it's taking not only how do we think about CO2 content within ocean water, but also how do we think about ocean, things like ocean acidification. And there's there's so much going on in that space. And I like to think about these as kind of hybrid solutions where we're really bringing the best that uh, or kind of using systems that nature has already developed so elegantly and beautifully and and really kind of just amplifying those. Uh, So like Captura, their approach is super interesting to me because it is engineered, but it uses just natural science and and ocean alkalinity to kind of make this happen, right? Like we see this across a lot of 
quote unquote engineered solutions that are actually really hybrid nature solutions. Um, so the, that kind of bucket of, of uh, projects is really exciting to me. That makes a lot of sense. So as we round out this conversation, you know, we always love to end with a little bit of a call to action to our listeners. So we'd love to get your take on, on for folks who are not working in that space today, how would you suggest they get involved or, or where should they start if they're just at the beginning of their sort of nature-based solutions, climate solutions journey? Yeah, I think, um, well, regardless of where you are on your journey, I think curiosity is the number one uh, trait to or develop or continue to hone in this space. So many of the things or so many of the solutions that are going to really unlock massive climate benefit are in the early stages of development today are, um, you know, things around MRV and how we're actually tracking and monitoring these solutions. That's such a critical part of how we get this right. And so, so much of, uh, so many of those solutions are not yet fully developed, right? And, and we have to ask more questions than we have, than we try to make answers for at this point. And so one of my favorite things to do is just read as much as possible, listen to as many podcasts as possible, talk to as many people as you can in the space, and just ask a lot of questions. Um, the IPCC report that just came out is really interesting. I think, you know, we're starting to develop so much new knowledge in this space, but the only way we do that is by asking a lot more questions than we have answers for. So I think just get curious ask a lot of questions, meet as many people as you can in the space, reach out to as many people as you can in the space. Because one of the interesting things about this space is we're generating this knowledge day by day. Like there isn't a, you know, storied history of, of how to build climate businesses that dates back, you know, 150, 200 years. Like we're, we're doing this now. And so just talking to people who are doing the work and asking them what questions they have, like what questions are unresolved for them. I think that's the best place to start. Um, and then also from there, I mean, like a, a few more tactical things and then, you know, kind of got to say it, but check, yeah, try to work on climate if you can. Um, I think a lot of folks say, you know, I'm not an environmental scientist or I don't have a climate background. What can I possibly do? Um, you know, at Patch, for example, we have product uh, managers and designers and engineers and marketers and people who did not have a climate background prior to coming to Patch, but who are true experts in their field and who are putting that to work for climate. So figure out what you can do if you're interested, if you're so inclined. Um, And then finally, I mean, just check out these different projects, like learn more about them, like really dig in and find as much information as you can about these different projects and, and, Try to kind of like, even in some cases, you can reach out to them, ask what you can do to help, but but figure out what it is that you love uh, with regard to climate projects and, and figure out how to support from there. Um, so I guess it's all, a, a long-winded way of saying, figure out what makes you excited and, and just go after it. I love that call to action, Ariel, and uh, you have set a high bar for the rest of our guests this season of the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. And we always wrap up with a lightning round, so we'll go through that. How about we start with this one, favorite carbon sink? Um, So I'm from Minnesota, very much a northerner. I have to say permafrost. Can't, uh, I love love permafrost and we got to protect it. 
I love that you said permafrost. We've not yet had a guest who said permafrost. So point for originality there. Uh, favorite book? I'll say two that are climate related. I come back to Let My People Go Surfing by Von Schoenard a lot. It was one of the first books that ever got me to think about the potential of building a career in climate related business. Um, so that one was just a, a pivotal one for me. And then All We Can Save, uh, an anthology of, of essays um, about kind of women in the climate crisis. I think it's a font uh, of kind of, it's a rejuvenating, rejuvenating font for me. I love that book. Awesome. If you had a magic wand, what would you change to scale natural climate solutions? More technology, faster. So more transparency, effectively. I think uh, the more folks can engage with the projects, as I mentioned throughout, really understand them. Uh, the better off we all are. And the more excited I think uh, we all get to, to do what we need to do to scale up these, these projects. What gives you hope? It's a bit nebulous, but the energy in this space, I think, you know, Julia, you and I have had the chance to meet at, at conferences and there's not a, I think in general, the media tends to focus on climate as this like doom and gloom. Oh my gosh, we are, you know, off track and this is so bad. Um, but when you're in it, when you're in the space, everyone is just focused on solutions. How do we, you know, how do we build something that addresses this problem? And how do we build a, you know, the investment or financial instrument to actually scale that up, right? Like there's just so much energy and optimism amongst the people working on climate that it gives me hope every day that, you know, and especially even those who haven't come into the space, we're going to develop really exciting solutions to help us get out of the get out of the situation that we are in. Agreed. The people in the space and the uh, dedication and um, drive to make the world better and address the challenge is definitely inspiring and energizing. Um, and finally, prediction for the biggest natural climate solutions headline of 2023. I don't know, actually, if I would say it's just natural climate solutions. So I'm sorry, it's a little bit of a cop out. But I think uh, one of the biggest headlines will be around claims. Uh, so what corporate climate claims are we able to make? I'm, I'm, I would not uh, pretend to be a marketer. Our, our marketing team has to make me pithier every day. So I'm not going to say exactly the headline, but I think it would be something around um, clarity around corporate climate claims and what that means for carbon crediting. Well, I'll be looking out for that one for sure. Uh, thank you so much, Ariel, for joining us. This was a fantastic conversation going from soil carbon and in-depth there and the nuances all the way to demand and offtake agreements and uh, the need for transparency. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today and um, really excited to, to have your perspective on the show. Well, thanks so much for having me and, and thank you for bringing the wide world of natural climate solutions to, to folks everywhere. It's really important. So appreciate everything that you all do. Thank you for joining today's episode of Solving Climate Naturally. Check out our website, solvingclimatenaturally.com, to see this episode's show notes, explore resources, and learn about upcoming episodes. Let us know what you think by connecting with us via email or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.